Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, March 30th, we're studying Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 8. As Jesus teaches in the temple during Holy Week, his enemies challenge him for the source of his authority. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Kilgo. Pastor Kilgo serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Kilgo, let's talk context. It is Holy Week. Where are we in Holy Week? What's happening? What do we need to know to approach this text in Luke 20? Yeah, so we are at the beginning of Holy Tuesday. Uh, so what's, what's kind of interesting with, with Holy Week is you get... Um, that we, we've had the triumphal entry and Jesus come in and he's cleansed the temple and he's preached. Um, and then on Monday, you've got a couple of things that go on. You, uh, he cursed the fig tree um, and, and whatnot. Uh, and then uh, right at the beginning of Tuesday, um, you get the Pharisees or the, the, the Sanhedrin here uh, come in and start uh, challenging Jesus' authority. And then the whole rest of Tuesday, you get all of these teachings of Jesus. And it's, it's actually the, the last bit of Jesus's teaching. And there's some really, really important ones that are in here. So like, he'll, um, like right after this, he, he will condemn the Pharisees in talking about the, the parable of the, the tenants in the vineyard. But he also talks about, uh, Jesus and David. He talks about, uh, the resurrection paying taxes to Caesar, um, the parables of the 10 virgins and the talents and the day of judgment, like all these things, all of this is on Tuesday and the majority of it, it's happening at the temple too. Um, and, and so you, you just have all these things that are going on within the temple and, um, dealing with the authority of Jesus to, you know, do all this sort of stuff. Um, and the immediate context that we would just want to keep in mind is the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple and Jesus teaching in the temple. Um, and maybe just to make sure we have this in our minds, when we say teaching the temple, you have to remember that you've got like all these uh, colonnades around the outside of the temple uh, where it, it's not like he's like in the Holy of Holies or something like this teaching. It's on the side. You've got these areas where people would group around rabbis and they would teach. And that that's what Jesus is doing here. Why is the setting of the temple an important thing to keep in mind not only for this teaching of Jesus, but as you said, as we keep going here in Luke 20. Yeah, because the the temple is at, at its core, it is the place where God's word proceeds forth, right? It, that, that its purpose is to come to pray and to hear God's word actually being expounded to you, read to you, preached to you, all this sort of stuff. Uh, so everything that the focus of the whole worship life of Israel and of the church in the New Testament as well is um, at the temple or at the, at the church. And so, 
Um, it, it's a de- it's dealing as as I said with his authority, but it's also dealing with just the the word of God and God's interaction with his people. So let's go ahead and take a look at this text. It is short, but there is a lot here. So we are in Luke 20, beginning at the first verse. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they were convinced that John is a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That's our text for today. That's Luke 20, verses 1 to 8. So, Pastor Kilgo, we have Jesus teaching, as we said. He's in the temple. And Luke also says he's preaching the gospel. What is, I mean, why why that specific reference to preaching the gospel? Yeah, so w- what's interesting is you, you would think that the just the term, like, preaching the gospel or the term gospel in general would be very, very common within the gospels themselves. But I, I remember we talked about this a while back with Mark. That Mark's gospel begins this the the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, and Mark's actually the the only one who uses the just the term gospel itself. Uh, Luke is almost the only one who uses the term preaching the gospel. Matthew has it once, um, but all throughout Luke, this term is showing up over and over and over. It starts with Gabriel, um, who announces at the Annunciation to Mary um, that he preaches the gospel or the good news that Christ is going to be born. Uh, You have that preaching to the shepherds out in the field. And then Jesus is doing this all throughout his ministry. He's there preaching the the good news, the the gospel. And this then is the last time that it shows up. So what's particularly important about this then is that as Jesus's uh, time of preaching and teaching is winding down, um, it's it's winding down in the same way that it began. That is with the preaching of the gospel. Uh, and, and so we see there's like this book ending of Luke itself in this, in the ministry of Jesus being bound up to his preaching this good news and this on the heels of what that good news is that he's going to, uh, suffer and die and be raised for the sins of humanity and for their justification. So, I mean, this preaching of the gospel, especially given that full context of what Luke has been doing with it. And then here at the end of the gospel of, according to Luke showing up right when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, it's kind of like, okay, he's been preaching the gospel all along. And now here in Jerusalem, he's going to fill, fulfill that preaching by what he does. And that's the way Luke's been leading us. And this use of the word preaching the gospel, I think reinforces that. Yeah, so it, so it's almost like it's this one last little reminder. It's like, oh yeah, by the way, this is what Jesus is doing here. You know, he's he's mm. he's preaching about what he's going to be doing, and this is part of why uh, you have so many groups, even the disciples, like they just don't get what he's saying a lot of times. But you have so many people who are kind of offended at what he's preaching because he's preaching, hey, I'm here, I'm God in the flesh, and I'm going to be dying for the sins of humanity. Um, 
and there, there's a couple of offenses to that. But one of that, one of the offenses is that uh, you guys are the ones who are going to kill me. Right. Mm. And, you know, you kind of think about how that would hit, hit the ears, especially of like the, uh, the religious leaders, right. That they, uh, you, you can see why, uh, they are not friendly with Jesus almost from the get go. Right. Mm. Yeah. What, what strikes me too, about this, this being the last use of this word, and then Jesus is going to actually do the dying, the rising. And it's not the same word that shows up in Luke 24, but after Jesus has risen from the dead, he's with his apostles and he tells them all the things that have happened have fulfilled the scriptures. And now you're going to go and proclaim that. And it's not the same verb that's used, but I think it, I mean, it, it, it's like once Jesus has accomplished and fulfilled the scriptures, then that preaching begins anew now through the apostles. And of course, you know, he carries, Luke carries that through into the book of Acts. Right. Yeah. So the, so Jesus is preaching about like, this is what I'm going to do. And then what the church does is it takes what the, I mean, we talk about what, what Jesus has done, but what we're preaching, like what we're actually giving is what Jesus talks about there that you reference the um, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, like the, the, the fruits of his work is what's being proclaimed, what's being given through speech uh, to the to the ears, hearts, and minds of uh, God's people until Jesus returns in his glory. And seeing it here that Jesus is preaching the gospel there in the temple during Holy Week is a good reminder of what Jesus was doing all along. The, the accounts that Luke specifies here beginning in chapter 20 seem pretty confrontational in nature. And yet all along, what's he doing? He's preaching the good news. He's proclaiming what he has come to do in his death and his resurrection. And it, I mean, I think that really helps to remind us that the rejection that Jesus receives is over that. It's not that they just didn't like him, thought he was ugly or something silly. They didn't like what he was preaching and what he was preaching was what he was going to do in his death and resurrection. It is an out and out rejection of that central message of, of Christianity. Right. And, and in Luke, what, what's kind of interesting about Luke is, um, so you, you have Jesus telling about his, um, uh, his death and resurrection three times in Luke. And the, um, the very last one of those comes, uh, in towards the end of chapter 18, uh, very shortly before he goes into Jerusalem. But the, the earlier ones, uh, Come, come pretty early on there. I believe both in, in chapter nine, if I remember yeah. correctly. Uh, so pretty early on in Jesus's ministry and, and he's saying, you know, this is why I'm here. I'm going to be handed over to the hands of sinful men and suffer and die. And, and in Luke, um, it, it's pretty emphatic on the disciples don't understand what he's talking about. And John is helpful because John gives the editorial insertion that, um, when Jesus was raised from the dead, then they understood these things, right? Now, now it all makes sense what's going on. So you can, we, we ought to give a, a little bit of um, uh, nicety to the scribes and Pharisees and whatnot and not understanding what Jesus is saying. But, you know, th there is a distinction between how they react to this and how the disciples react to it. The disciples react in confusion, but they keep coming and sitting at Jesus' feet that, um, the, the issue with the religious leaders, and, and we're going to see this in this text, is that they, they react with the lack of uh, repentance uh, to hearing what Jesus is telling them. 
So let's turn our attention to those enemies of Jesus. Luke lists them here as the chief priests, the scribes, with the elders. Who are these people? How does Luke introduce them to us in this text? Yeah, so so it's the same, at least it seems like this, the same general group, at least, maybe not the same people, but in uh, just a couple of verses earlier, uh, it says, uh, he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. And then you get this kind of, uh, connection here, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders. And what this is, is this constitutes uh, what is called the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin are this uh, kind of the religious order, and it's made up of these different groups. You've got the the priest class, and you've got the the teachers, and you've got um, kind of the 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 laity in in that sense in the in the elders there. And um, one of the things that they are responsible for is ensuring that there are not false preachers and false prophets that are coming up uh, and particularly uh, at the temple or in the surrounding area of is of uh, uh, Jerusalem and causing issue uh, the the background of the whole thing actually comes out of numbers 11 where Moses institutes or appoints the 70 elders and that their job is to be judges over Israel. They're, they're judging the disputes. They're judging uh, false doctrine and all these sorts of things. And so out of that comes this group. And there, there's some question on what the actual size is, but it's thought that uh, it's most likely 70 plus one, that the kind of the leader, so to speak, of the group would be the high priest, um, uh, which is different from the chief priests. Uh, we should just make that note. Chief priests and high priest are not the same one. There's one high priest. There's a, a few chief priests. Um, and uh, uh, that he would, so the, the high priest would be kind of the, the the leader of the group. And they're going around and they're they're making sure everything's fine. This, this is the group that is sent or sends uh, the delegation to check out John the Baptist in uh, John chapter one. Uh, and they're trying to discern, like, who is this guy out here doing this? Like, the, does he have the authority to do this? Is he allowed to be doing these things? Is he a false prophet? Is he a false uh, preacher? That's why they ask him these questions. Like, are you Elijah? Are you um, the prophet? Right. The, the, these sorts of questions. Are you the are you the Messiah? Right. So they, they know kind of what to look for. They know they're looking for the Messiah. They're looking for the return of Elijah. They're looking for the prophet, which is a reference to the, the prophet greater than Moses. Um, and John the Baptist, you know, quotes Isaiah there and tells him, you know, this is, this is where my authority is coming from. And then they leave him be right. Cause they, they realize, okay, he's, he's allowed to be out here doing this, but they're, they're kind of the, the religious um, uh, police force, so to speak for kind of lack of a, bit, a better term on this. So when they're coming up to Jesus here, we, we should hear like, this is, this is not intrinsically wrong. This is actually part of their duties to be making sure that um, they're they're guarding against false doctrine and false prophets. Um, but we know, at least especially from Luke, that they are seeking to destroy Jesus, but they don't find any opportunity um, earlier. Now they think they have an opportunity. They you know they they think they're they're going to trap Jesus, as happens in a few other places, and obviously that doesn't work. Sure. So on on the one hand, there is a, a sense of legitimacy to this interaction in that the Sanhedrin should have been concerned about who's teaching, what their authority is, whether or not what they're saying is true. 
But from previous information, we also know that they are out to get Jesus. And so while they do have this legitimacy in asking the question, it's also not innocent either. There is a sense in which this authority question, they maybe they think this is the easy way out. If they can get him on this one, then they don't have to worry about any of the other ones that will come up. Right. And it, it kind of makes me think of when when they're trying to uh, condemn Jesus in the trials and the, the sham trials that are going on um, when he's uh, captured, uh, Jesus ultimately has to condemn himself, right? Um, they, they, they can't get anybody to agree. You've got to have two witnesses and all this sort of stuff. And it kind of makes me think a little bit of that, of they, they think that if they can get Jesus to say what they hope he's going to say, claim authority from God for himself, um, they, they can overrule that because one of the things with the Sadducees, um, uh, or not the, 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 the Sanhedrin is that they are the, um, they are the chief authority. So they're the ones that would point that they would give the authority to the rabbis, uh, historically, whether that's going on still at this time is a little debated. Uh, but they, they would have historically given the authority to the rabbis to teach. Um, so so if if somebody says, you know, I'm I have this authority from God and the Sanhedrin says, no, you don't, they, they've got a lot more weight behind their authority as the Sanhedrin than the individual does. So uh, you can see that there's almost a, a reflection of what they're what they're trying to do. They're trying to trap Jesus in this and get him to condemn himself. And he doesn't do it yet. He will condemn himself later with a very similar thing where he he claims uh, the authority from God in um, you know, you will see the son of man ascending and descending, uh, from the throne. They tear their clothes and all this sort of stuff. You've been bringing up the issue of authority, which is what the Sanhedrin brings up with Jesus. Their question to him, it seems twofold. Maybe there, I think these two things are related, if not very similar. Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Take us into this question and how it centers on the authority that Jesus has, or they would say doesn't have. Right. So they're, they're asking, like you said, two almost parallel questions. They're a little bit different. One is the kind of authority and the other is the source of authority. I mean, these are obviously bound up together. Uh, one is like what he's saying and doing. And the other is um, who told him he could say and do the things. So um, their, their issue is they, they don't think that he's been given the authority um, chiefly from themselves, but much less from God to do these things. Um, one of the things that we see, especially in the New Testament, very clearly is that there is a an ordering to where authority flows from. So you have authority flowing from the Father um, to, for example, the state. You see this with Pilate, for example, what Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no authority unless it had been granted to you by my Father in heaven. Uh, Jesus says the same of himself in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Um, so that there is this, this line from the father to Jesus. And then there's also a line from Jesus to the church, right? So that um, the authority that Jesus has, um, he gives to the church in order to do certain things. And you, it, Jesus even seems to affirm this with the scribes and Pharisees. He will say, uh, for example, that the 
uh, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. But then he says, but uh, do not follow their example, right? So, so he's saying they have authority as ones who sit on Moses' seat to give directions religiously, um, uh, spiritually, theologically. But uh, they are not doing what they themselves are, are preaching. So apparently their, their preaching is not all entirely off, which is kind of an interesting thought. It's, it's their particular practices that, that are the, the, the big issue and how they themselves are, are living uh, in accord with this stuff. So when it comes to this matter of authority and, and trying to think what the, with the Sanhedrin, the authority that, as you said, Jesus does acknowledge they have this authority that in sitting in Moses' seat I mean, if you were to turn this question to the Sanhedrin, the authority by which they teach, they would say, we have authority from God, and then you need to get your authority either from God himself or from us, probably more the from us, right? I mean, they see themselves, I think, as the, the gatekeepers of God's authority. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that would be right. Um, and, and this is going to be one of the issues, because if Jesus says that he's got authority from God, if that's his, they, that's what they want his answer to be, it seems. And if he says that, then they can just overrule him, right? So um, even though there is evidence of this, that we'll talk about this, there is evidence already that he has authority from the Father that's already been established in the Gospels very, very clearly. Mm-hmm. But um, they they are, like you said, I think this is a good term. They're, they essentially are functioning as like the gatekeepers of authority. And that's fine to an extent, right? They you, you do have to have some something in creation in the world and the Lord works this way um, in order to make sure that you don't just have, you know, whoever wants to starts getting up and, and preaching or prophesying or whatever. You've got to have some guards against that so that you make sure that who is ever doing this um, does have the authority broadly to do it as God has instituted, uh, for example, like in the in the preaching office, but also that they're. Um, they're not up there preaching false doctrine, giving false prophecies, this sort of stuff. And the Lord, you know, like, again, we see this with Moses, the Lord sets up these guards against that sort of thing. But ultimately, the authority is still coming from God there. And that seems to be one of the things that the uh, the Sanhedrin have maybe forgotten. Well, and I think that's an important recognition within this text that there is this authority that they do have to watch out for false doctrine. And I think that's important to recognize because it makes this not only a conflict between Jesus and his enemies, but in the way that Jesus responds to them, not only not falling into their trap, but also then it becomes an opportunity in which Jesus takes the chance to, to actually call them to repentance, to recognize you haven't been using this authority correctly. You're not using it correctly right now, but here's your chance to repent. And I think when we see, you know, when we bring that out, that this becomes more than just a, a contest to see who can win in the battle of wits, but it is our Lord actually calling sinners to repentance once again. Right. And I mean, this is one of the things that Jesus is always doing, right? He's, he's always giving the opportunity for repentance to, to people. Um, he is, as he says of himself in the, the Psalms, um, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy, right? So, so here you see him doing this where he's, he's giving them the opportunity. It's like, well, okay, 
let's take a step back. Who does the uh, authority from John the Baptist come from? Because that that's actually been established, right? Like like we talked about, they they went and they checked him out, and you know, basically gave him the the thumbs up, um, because they didn't go and just kind of run him run him out. And so he's giving them the opportunity to say, okay, yeah, you're right. Um, John the Baptist has this authority from God. You also have this authority from God. Um, please forgive us, right? That would be the appropriate response, but that also takes. Uh, not only um, humility, but repentance. And that seems to be completely lacking. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and we've, we've seen that all along, this unwillingness of these groups of people, scribes, elders, chief priests, and Pharisees as well, previously in Jesus' ministry, have not had that humility that, I mean, for example, the par- parable Jesus tells in Luke 18 You've got the Pharisee who's standing there in the temple praying about how great he is. And you've got the tax collector praying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here, these chief priests, these scribes, these elders are going to line up with that Pharisee in his attitude of self-righteousness and pride, rather than in the humility of the tax collector that would recognize sin and cry out to the Lord here for his forgiveness, for his mercy. Right. And I mean, that, that's always, that, that is one of these just kind of fundamentally important texts in, in understanding how God is desiring to interact with us, right? That's why he, he says things, um, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus tells the, um, the people to go and learn what this means, right? Go, go and understand that, um, I desire to be merciful to you. Um, uh, not that you offer all these sacrifices to me um and yet inwardly are unchanged right and that and that's the issue that you see over and over and over um with the opponents of jesus is that they they refuse to be changed by god's word they they harden their hearts to it as pharaoh did and as saint paul warns about like in romans one yeah so our lord though in his mercy still calls out to these members of the Sanhedrin, to repent. He does it through the question that he asks them. And we will pick more of that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are looking at Luke 20 with Pastor Sean Kilgo. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, March 30th. We're studying Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 8 with Pastor Sean Kilgo. He serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, prior to the break, we got to the question from the Sanhedrin to Jesus, questioning his authority. Jesus, in common rabbinical practice, turns back to them with a question, and his question deals with the baptism of John. He asks, was it from heaven or from man? So a, a question of authority 
why is this the move that Jesus makes? What is the connection between the baptism of John and Jesus' authority? Yeah, so that this is where Jesus' authority is actually um, first established. Um, and it's primarily in the voice born from heaven. Right? This establishes who he is and what he's here to do. He's the beloved son from God with whom God is well pleased. And he is here to be the fulfillment of then what John the Baptist has been talking about, the uh, the coming savior. Right. So so John the Baptist and, and Jesus are just linked in this uh, fundamentally important way. John the Baptist being the forerunner, Jesus being the thing that is being forerun for. And so what what John has been saying about him um, is now um, affirmed in the voice of of the father. And then we see this actually throughout um, that. That's where it's it's first set up. But we see this throughout the Gospels where his authority continues to be upheld, uh, particularly in his uh, the, the sorts of healings and stuff that he will do, the sorts of miracles that he will do, because it's it's not the normal sorts of things, right? You get connections to the the, the prophets who will talk about the the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf hear and the poor have the good news preached to them, right? You have that. And that's actually responding to John the Baptist's question, right? Are you the one that we should look for or shall we look for another? Uh, you also have um, the, uh, the, the healing of the paralytic where uh, Jesus says, you know, your sins are forgiven. And they're all looking at him like, what do you mean your sins are forgiven? And he says, well, which is easier to say, rise up, take up your bed and walk or your sins are forgiven. And the obvious is your sins are forgiven because you can't tell externally whether those words did anything. Uh, and then Jesus says, so that you would know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. Uh, he turns and he says to the man, rise, take up your bed and walk. And it happens, right? So in the same way that his words did this thing, he had authority to tell the man, tell his body to get up and do something. And it follows that command. Um, the, the words enact the reality. So also what I said earlier, your sins are forgiven. That also enacts the reality. I have the authority to do these things. And I actually, in this case, I have authority over creation itself, right? That's, that's one of the things. And then you see this also in like when he's walking across the sea, right? And he tells the, the, the wind and the waves to, um, uh, be silent, be still, and they obey him. Um, and the disciples ask this question, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And kind of behind that is this question, who is this that has authority even over the sea, right? Because only God has authority over the sea. In, in the in the scriptures so mm -hmm. um so all of this is being established throughout but it starts yep. with john the baptist and his baptism of jesus in the jordan it it's striking how many times in luke you've seen the authority of jesus both in the miracles and in the teaching and there are even there are examples early on in jesus ministry in luke 4 where the people who listen to jesus and his teaching they recognize his authority in teaching even before they see it in a miracle, in a sign. And I mean, you know, Jesus is not doing signs here in Jerusalem. You know, it, you know he, he's asked about his authority and he doesn't do kind of like what you mentioned in the healing of the paralytic. He doesn't do something here where he, he shows them, hey, take a look at this. And that should let you know that I have the authority to say what I'm saying rather. And this is, I think, a genius move. And of course it is because he's the Lord. 
you know, he points them back to John the Baptist, which then invites them really to take a look at his entire ministry and to consider what they already should know about the question that they've posed to him. If they've been paying attention, they should know where his authority comes from. Right. And it and it's a, a kind of a prodding for us as the hearer uh, listener as well to to kind of look back at the gospel of Luke as well and say, have I been reading this correctly? Have I been seeing that? One, there's this connection between the authority of John and the authority of Jesus, uh, but also primarily that Jesus is the 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 main thing. His authority over all this stuff is the main thing that's being presented just over and over and over and over and over through the gospel. So, right, yeah, and an opportunity for us to to reflect upon what have we read so far? How does that apply to this question? How should we answer this question so that we don't fall into the trap of the Sanhedrin here, not, not the, the trap of their unbelief. That's what we don't want to fall into. So again, this question of authority that Jesus has, you, know, you see it displayed throughout the gospel. How does this apply to our life in the church and, and the authority of Jesus' word among us still today? Yeah. So Jesus, who has the authority of the Father to do these things, then takes that and he gives it to us. And there's, there's a few different places that we see this. So like in the Office of the Keys, for example, uh, uh, Jesus tells them, uh, whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. And he does this you know, three different times. And this is taking his authority and giving it over to the authority of, uh, of the church to forgive sin uh, through the voice, uh, especially of the pastor. And this, this makes its way into our, into our catechism, right? Um, so we we ask, you know, what what do you believe according to these words? Um, that I believe that when the called ministers of Christ deal with us according to His divine command, uh, that this is just as valid and certain even in heaven as if Christ our Lord dealt with us Himself, right? So that there is there is a validity to this because there is a command from Jesus to do the thing. The sacraments are the same way. The reason why the sacraments are valid is because of God's command that is attached. The authority is given in that. But then we see this really, really clearly in uh, Matthew 28, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And then the way that he gives that authority to the church is in the things that he gives, uh, to baptize into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe or keep all things that I have commanded you. And he says that uh, through that, I am with you always even into the end of the age, right? So, so that his authority then gets, gets transferred into um, uh, preaching, teaching, administering the sacraments. That this is, in, in a pretty profound way, this is where we continue to see Jesus' authority because Jesus' authority is connected to his speaking, right? E- even here that um, he's, you know, previously they, they've talked about that he, they perceive him as one who's preaching as one with authority, Right. Um, they're, they're asking, you know, by what authority do you do these things? Um, and they're referring to uh, not only his cleansing of the temple, but also that he then after he cleansed the temple, he stood in the temple and continued uh, teaching. There's this really nice picture there that he sweeps the temple clean and then he fills it with what should be there, namely his word. Mm-hmm. Right. So so that you you always see this connection between Jesus's authority and his word which is the thing that then the church continues to carry along 
that gives Jesus, right? So there's this, um, you know, uh, parallelism sort of thing going on. Jesus gives us his word and his word gives us him. Well, and I mean that, again, thinking through the way that St. Luke puts together both Luke and Acts, that's what we see happen into the book of Acts as the word goes out. So Jesus goes out with his authority and that that authority continues to bring people into his church. And it, I mean, this still influences our lives within the church as pastor and people today. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we get this, this question that, you know, shows up periodically, you know, what is what does ministry look like today versus 50 years ago or versus like a thousand years ago? What's going to look like in another hundred years, all this sort of stuff. Well, you know, there, there are some things that, that change a little bit, right? So, you know, a thousand years ago, you and I wouldn't be sitting here recording, you know, something on Luke 20 and maybe in a thousand years, we wouldn't be doing it either. There'll be, you know, something else maybe, but at its core, like what, what is the, what is the ministry? What is the, the job of the church? Uh, the the purpose of the church. What what does all this look like? Well, it still rests on the authority of the scriptures, the authority of Jesus's word to us that gives us everything. Right? If if we don't have God's word, if we don't have the authority of God, the authority of Jesus in His word, then we don't have anything. Right? We don't have the sacraments. We don't have faith. We don't have forgiveness of sins. We don't have eternal life. Um, but the wonderful thing is that you know, kind of like Paul says, you know, uh, if if Christ were not raised from the dead, then we are of all people most be pitied. But in fact, Christ is raised from the dead. So, you know, if we didn't have God's word, we don't have any of this stuff. But in fact, we do have God's word. And it's a it's a wonderful and glorious thing to have. Talk more about the authority of God's word, the Holy Scriptures particularly. I know that you and I have had a conversation about this, the seven attributes of scripture and, and authority is is on that list. So talk about the authority of sacred scripture particularly. Yeah. So the authority is sacred uh, of, of the scriptures is simply that um, God's word is the thing that gets to tell us what to do and not do, what to believe and not believe, uh, what we can say, not say, all these. It is the governing thing of our lives and of creation. Uh, it, 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 it is the thing that has the authority. And so then anything that we're doing, particularly in the church, but as Christians in our daily lives, um, ought to be and must be governed by that authority. Now there's other authorities that come along, right? But those always have to be assumed underneath the authority of scripture. So like we, we do this in our confessions where we say that the, um, the sole source and norm of all doctrine and practice in the church is the old and new testaments of the Holy scriptures that that's in the, the formula of Concord. Um, and so everything has to be placed under that then. So, you ask this question, like, what am I authorized to do? What do I have the authority to do in the church? Well, the answer to that is going to be what, what has God given you in the scriptures, right? What, what is, uh, what does the pastor have the authority to do or preach? Well, the question to that is what's in the scriptures. So, um, the authority of the scriptures, uh, is a, I mean, all the attributes of scripture are, are very, very important. This is a, maybe one of the more practical ones because it's the, it's the governing thing um, or the governing aspect of the scriptures that they, they do get to tell us what to do and what to say and what not to, all these sorts of things. Right. 
Well, and, and without talking about all the attributes of Scripture again, but I think the the reason that the Scriptures have that authority, if, if I recall our conversation, which you can go back and listen to that, we had a, a Back to the Forge episode where we talked about these. The reason that the Scriptures have this authority is because they have for their author the one who's talking here in Luke 20, Jesus Christ. Yeah, so so all of the Scriptures, all, all the attributes of Scripture have as their core the inspiration, right? That they are the God-breathed words, right? So th- these are the words coming out of Jesus' mouth um, one way or another, that he is the um, the author of all the Scriptures uh, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation uh, 22-21. Everything is the words of Jesus. And because they're the words of Jesus, they carry his authority, right? So it's the same sort of deal of like, I think this is maybe the example we use when we talk about this. Um, you know, when a when a king writes a decree and he sends it out with the messenger and the messenger goes and he stands in the public square and he reads, by decree of king so-and-so, you know, this is happening. Well, those words are the king's words. They're coming out of the the messenger's mouth, but they're the king's words and they carry his authority, right? So same thing here, you know, so when, when the, you know, pastor decrees to you something, um, so long as it comports with what God has said, it carries the authority of God himself, which, you know, one governs like is what you should do or not do, but especially it's important in the topic of the forgiveness of sin. So that when you hear your pastor say your sins are forgiven, um, you know, or you're coming in and you're talking to your pastor because you have a, a guilty conscience about something, something's bothering you. And your pastor says that thing it's forgiven, right? Whatever it is, uh, it's covered by the blood of Jesus. That, that, that word of your pastor actually does have author- the, the very authority of Jesus himself, um, to, to do that. Hmm. Yeah, and that's good news. This, this conversation about the authority that Jesus has is intended to be good news. The Sanhedrin has brought it to the Lord in an attempt to trap him. He's turned it back upon them, calling them to look at the baptism of John, think about the entirety of Jesus' ministry and the authority that they should be able to recognize comes from God. Now, the Sanhedrin takes Jesus' question. I always kind of picture them going back into a little bit of a huddle. They start talking to each other. Take us into the dilemma that the Sanhedrin discovers when they start to ponder Jesus' question to them. Yeah, so they, they've got a couple of options, right? Um, either they can say that the authority from John comes from heaven, or they can say that it comes from man. There, there's no other options, right? So their dilemma is, well, if we say that it comes from heaven, then, you know, there's going to be some serious questions. Like, why didn't you listen to John? Why did you refuse to be baptized by John? Like that, that's, I think it's back in chapter seven or something like that, that mm-hmm. they, yeah. um, it's very explicit. They, they refuse the, the baptism of, uh, of John. And so there's going to be these questions and you have to remember, like, there's, there's not just the Sanhedrin that's standing there. There's a crowd that's around here because Jesus is, is teaching. We didn't mention this, but that the word for when when uh, they they come up to him, it's it's this kind of sudden appearing, like it's almost like they come out of nowhere and they're like standing over him, right? So you can kind of the way this pictures in my mind is Jesus is uh, is like sitting there teaching people, and all of a sudden, like you see the shadows come up behind him, and you've got all these guys standing behind him, and they're like, "Hey, whose authority do you have to do these things?" Right, and so you've got them, but you've also got the crowd and that's why they're afraid, right? So they're afraid one, 
because there's going to be a lot of questions to their own authority on if they say, well, this was from heaven. So John was a legitimate prophet, but we didn't listen to him. Well, that that's an issue. Um, but if they say that he's uh, from man, then they're going to have an issue because all the people believe that he's from God, that he's a true prophet. So they're kind of trapped in this, right? Um, and so they take uh, door number three and they say, we don't know, right? Which is, um, it's a complete cop out. It's cowardice on their point. Um, it's a refusal to uh, to repent. We mentioned this earlier that the proper one would be to say, okay, yes, it's from from heaven. You're right. We should have been baptized by him. We should have been listening to you. Please forgive us, right? To recognize this, this is the one who has this authority to forgive and that he would. Like, that's the thing. Jesus would forgive them, right? He's not going to be like, well, you know, I'm glad that you've come to that realization, but, you know, too late, too bad, you know, go away. Mm. That that's not That's not what would happen there. So... Unfortunately, they they take this. It's also, though, going back to the beginning of our conversation, that it's a dereliction of their duty that they have the duty to determine whether or not uh, Jesus and John are uh, false prophets or not. And so for them to say, well, you know, we don't know. That's them saying we're not doing our job in guarding Israel against false teachers and false prophets. So even though it's a bad answer. <laughs> Well, I, I really appreciate, first of all, what you said about had they answered this correctly in repentance, that reminder of what Jesus would have done in receiving them. You know, and that brings to mind all kinds of texts in Luke, but particularly, I think, the end of chapter 15, that parable of the father and his two sons, you know, where you've got that, that parable is told out of the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling about who Jesus is eating with. If they would humble themselves here, and become those sinners that they really are, then Jesus would rejoice. I mean, you you would see that joy come, and I, I that's I think that's just a fantastic reminder. Again, it puts the these conflicts in Holy Week in that greater context of what Jesus is trying to do. He's not just trying to best people to show people he's smarter than them. He's actually seeking and saving the lost here. Yeah, I mean, it, and it even just right before this. Um, he, he comes in in the triumphal entry and he says, would that you even know you had known this day for the things that make for peace? Like he wants them to repent. He wants them to stand under his mercy and his forgiveness. And this is what the Lord always desires. This is back in the Old Testament that the that God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That is his desire. And sadly, you know, there's a good chunk of people that just refuse like like the. Sanhedrin here, they they have the the opportunity given by Jesus once again to do the right thing, to make the good confession and to repent, to be forgiven. And they just refuse to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the other part that stood out to me about your answer. And it is, it's a strong warning, no doubt, that in taking, as you said, door number three, which is really just a cop out, they do make confession and it is a false confession. You know, they, they think they're going to escape by just weaseling out and saying nothing, but in so doing, they only continue down that path of unrepentance and false confession and that dereliction of their duty to rightly discern true teaching. Right. And you, you kind of have to wonder like what the crowd is thinking at this mm -hmm. point, like listening to this, they're like, wait a minute, that wasn't one of the options. <laughs> so, um, like what, what are you guys doing here? You guys are supposed to be the 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 ruling 
class. You guys are the te- as as Jesus rebukes Nicodemus, you can kind of almost hear maybe a rebuke in the minds of the people. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Right? How 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 are you going to preach to us when you can't answer a question like this? Because they're all like, well, it's an obvious answer. It's from uh, the authority of John is from heaven, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's why we're sitting here listening to Jesus because his authority is from heaven too. Um, I, I, I like to think that this is the same group that that's hanging on his words at the end of chapter 19, it's the same group of people. Um, and, and if that's the case and if they've been around Jesus any time at all, um, they, they're going to have some serious questions about the, the Sanhedrin in, in this, um, they think it's a non-answer. Like you said, they're, they're, they're able to kind of weasel out of this, but it, it is a confession. Um, and it's the wrong confession. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that, that does serve as a warning to us that there's no, there's, there's no getting out of this in terms of answering Jesus question. You, you have to pick a side. He's either from heaven or he's from man choose accordingly and and own it and that's what i mean that's that's what's so unsatisfying about the the answer given by the sanhedrin is that they refuse to own what they actually believe they just they just weasel out but but it is a warning you you have to confess about jesus one way or the other right and and like i mentioned uh, previously it, it it is a cowardice on their part right they they they're afraid to admit that they're wrong and they're afraid of the punishment of the crowd right which, which whichever way they they are afraid and you can see then like what Jesus has preached previously, you know, do not fear them who can um, only destroy the body, but cannot destroy the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Um, yeah. That their fear is improperly placed, which means their faith is as well. Take us to take us to Jesus response. Then they have said, hey, we're not going to tell you. We don't know Jesus response. Why does he respond the way that he does? Yeah. So. Uh, his response is basically saying, you, you know, the right answer. Um, you're, you're just not willing to admit it. You're not willing to repent. And so I'm, I'm just not going to answer you. Right. Um, and, and it just, it stops them, right. Because they know they, they can't, they can't say anything to this. And what's interesting is it, it, it launches straight in Luke. It launches straight into the, the parable, the, the wicked tenants. Um, which is told against this group, right? So, so that that's pretty interesting. And, and at least to me, I I hear an echoing of this, um, the rich man and Lazarus, where uh, the 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 rich man uh, being in torment thinks that if Lazarus goes and appears to his brothers, that they'll repent and. The, the first response is they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the rich man's answer is no, uh, which is not a great answer. Um, that would be the wrong answer if anybody is confused on that. And uh, he says, if someone should rise from the dead, um, then, they'll, then they'll believe. And uh, Abraham's response is, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they believe if someone should rise from the dead. And there's this linking of hearing and, and faith there. And the same thing's going on here. So, so Jesus is like, well, if you will not hear the preaching of John the Baptist, and you will not hear the voice born from the majestic glory at my baptism, and you will not hear my preaching throughout these last three years, then you're, you're not going to hear anything else that I'm saying, 
right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's a good connection. So he refuses to answer because the answer is already there for them to hear and believe. We have just under two minutes here, Pastor Kilgo, as we wrap things up this morning at the first part of Luke 20, help us to, to recall what's going on here and give us the good news for us as Christians from this text in Luke 20. Well, so we, we mentioned this earlier of, you know, that there's a, an opportunity for confession here. And Jesus poses this question to Peter, but it's posed to the entire church. Who do you say that I am? Right. Who Who is Jesus? And that is the fundamental question that we always have to answer uh, as Christians. Who is Jesus? Um, and so we're reminded we need to give the right answer to that, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he has come in order to uh, take upon himself our sins in order to be crucified and to die the death that we deserve and to be raised for our justification and to ascend to the right hand of the father um, so that all of our prayers would ascend with him so that he would have all authority and power, um, be able to give us things like the Lord's Supper uh, into perpetuity, all this sort of stuff. Uh, that this is this is the good news when we confess who Jesus actually is and what he does for us. It is a uh, a wonderfully comforting thing that he's not our enemy. He's not against us. He's not here trying to trick us or trap us with all these, you know, kind of weird questions that the Sanhedrin like to bring along. Um, he's just very straightforward with us. And he tells us, repent and believe the, the gospel, repent and believe the good news that though you have sinned, uh, though your sins are as scar scarlet, they will be white as snow. They will be cleansed by my blood. Um, and, it, and it doesn't matter you know, what our background has been up to that point and, and what's happened in our lives up to that point that, that he's there taking all of this away. And, and this is the good news that he's preaching to this crowd and that he continues to preach to us today. Pastor Sean Kilgo is pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas, helping us today with Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 8. Pastor Kilgo, thanks for being our guest today. Yep, great to be here. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 20 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.